Hello, my name is Lowell Brown, and I'm a partner at Aaron Fox in the healthcare law group. I've been the practice group leader there for many years, and I'm happy to be recording this podcast for you today. Our topic today is responding to disruptive practitioners and the various pitfalls and tips that healthcare providers and especially medical staffs run into when they're trying to deal with that problem, which is one of the most vexing disciplinary problems facing physician leaders today. In fact, many of my fellow peer review lawyers and I have noticed that disruptive practitioner behavior, which was once a fairly rare phenomenon, seems to become a regular occurrence in our clients' world. In the past, a physician and hospital leader would face a serious behavioral problem only occasionally. Now it seems that most physician discipline cases include at least one element of seriously disruptive behavior. Along the way, we've learned some things that may make it easier for hospitals and health systems and provider groups as well. Large medical groups face this problem. To deal with the troublesome and trying matters like this, any discussion of disruptive behavior must begin with the definition of what we're talking about. The American Medical Association helpfully provides one in its disruptive practitioner policy. Disruptive behavior, according to the AMA, is, quote, a style of interaction with physicians, hospital personnel, patients, family members, or others that interferes with patient care. That last concept, interference with patient care, is exceedingly important. In most states, a physician's behavior won't be grounds for corrective action unless a connection can be drawn between the behavior on one hand and patient care on the other. The famous case in California where I practice is Miller versus Eisenhower Medical Center, decided by the state Supreme Court in 1980. In other words, simply being difficult, boorish, impolite, or arrogant is not enough. Patient safety must be in jeopardy as a result of the behavior. And if it is, there will be grounds for taking corrective action. So with that definition and that connection to patient care in mind, uh, here are some of the four questions that viewers should ask themselves as they prepare to deal with their own disruptive practitioners. First, does your state have a whistleblower statute? In order to encourage healthcare providers, whether physicians, nurses, or others, to report unsafe conditions in hospitals, many states now have statutes encouraging whistleblower activity. For example, California Health and Safety Code Section 1278.5 was expanded in 2008 to include physicians among those who are protected from retaliation for bringing to light unsafe practices or conditions. In other words, people who complain in a hospital about equipment, employee quality, service quality, environment, and so forth. California Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a case about that statute shortly, in fact, next month, and we will be representing one of the parties in that case. If there is a whistleblower statute, it's important that any complaint by a physician that comes your way as a hospital or a medical staff leader be carefully investigated and taken seriously. In other words, when a physician comes to you and says there's something wrong in the hospital and that it affects patient care, and that he or she is speaking about it in order to bring it to your attention and to warn you that something must be done. Indeed, something must be done. You need to take the complaint seriously, investigate the matter thoroughly, and document your response and what you learned, because that will be important if there's ever litigation arising from a whistleblower claim. In other words, if a physician is someone who is a 
serial complainer. That doesn't mean you should ignore his or her complaints about anything related to patient care. It's important to take all such complaints seriously. Question number two, do you have a code of conduct? Since 2008, the Joint Commission has enforced a leadership standard, LD 03.01.01. That standard added elements of performance four and five, and the requirement now is that a hospital has, and I quote, a code of conduct that defines acceptable and disruptive and inappropriate behaviors, and that both healthcare facility leaders create and implement a process for managing disruptive and inappropriate behavior. Now, working with legal counsel, medical staffs, and hospitals should be sure that a code of conduct is in place in their hospital and that it covers not only hospital employees, but also medical staff. This is important because the Joint Commission requirement does not specifically mention the medical staff. It simply says that the hospital should have a code of conduct. So a medical staff who heeds this requirement, and they all should, should place the requirements for behavior in the medical staff policies, not in the medical staff bylaws. A provision about behavior and policies for dealing with behavior in the bylaws is difficult to change. And as we've seen, standards for behavior have changed over the years as to what is acceptable and what is not in the workplace. So you should have a policy on a code of conduct, but also the medical staff bylaws should state behavioral standards. And both the policy and the medical staff bylaws should be consistent with one another and acknowledge one another's existence. So, for example, not one policy should exist for dealing with disruptive behavior and another in the medical staff bylaws. And the medical staff itself and the medical executive committee should always have full authority to deal with any inappropriate behavior. Also, the bylaws ought to, to address codes of conduct by specifying how the rules integrate with other bylaws provisions on corrective action so that when behavior that violates the code of conduct rises to the level of formal corrective action, medical staff leaders have clear grounds for acting. Question number three, do you routinely use early intervention? And what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, most experienced peer reviewers will tell anyone who listens that the earlier a behavior problem is addressed, the easier it will be to resolve. Now, ideally, the chief of staff another medical staff leader or maybe the chief medical officer would interview a physician whose behavior has been questioned. The meeting's purpose would be to form an alliance with the physician. That's not always possible, but it's an important goal. And I must note that after a meeting like this in which a physician's poor behavior is discussed, the physician should receive a written summary of the behavior issues that are identified and of the agreed upon action for going forward. Now, the plan that results from the meeting has to be enforced. If you meet with the physician and set forth standards for his behavior, which he agrees to, the effort will be meaningless in the end if there's not a follow-through to violations and the medical staff leaders who have that meeting with the physician do not insist on accountability. Accountability is the key to ensuring that these early intervention efforts are effective. Last question number four, should you use a behavior contract? This is different from the follow-up letter that would result from the early intervention meeting. In our firm, we are big fans of behavior contracts. They're allowed under most medical staff bylaws, and they serve several important purposes. One is that they give the physician fair warning that their behavior has now reached the point where corrective action will be taken. 
unless the physician complies with the contract. In other words, the physician knows that he is on the brink of more serious action and going down a path he may not want to go down. Second, the behavior contracts provide written standard for the physician's behavior. There can't be any argument about what the physician is supposed to do or not supposed to do in terms of his behavior in the workplace. And oftentimes, we include in the behavior contract that words like offensive or demeaning, etc., mean what they mean to ordinary reasonable people in ordinary interactions with others. So there's no dispute about what does that mean? What I did was not disruptive because it wasn't offensive to most people, certainly not offensive to me. You avoid those kind of discussions by having that kind of language in the agreement. Last of all, perhaps most important from a legal point of view regarding behavior agreement, those agreements put the medical staff leadership in a position to take corrective action if necessary. Behavior agreement is pre-corrective action, really. It's simply an agreement whereby the physician agrees to behave in a certain way and agrees to certain consequences from failure to do so. It doesn't mean that corrective action will be taken, but it will say that if the physician does not abide by the conditions in the agreement, there will be behavior action or at least grounds for it. So once you have one of these behavior contracts in place, it simply must be enforced. This goes back to the accountability point I mentioned earlier. In my experience, the worst thing medical staff leaders can do is to insist that a disruptive physician sign a contract and then act as if the contract doesn't exist. That will send an unmistakable and unfortunate message to the physician involved, as well as to others who are watching. The medical staff lacks the will to follow through. Now, consistent with state law requirements, the contract should recognize due process rights and include provision clear ones about the type of hearing that a physician will receive in the event the physician violates the contract and corrective action is initiated that does give the physician a right to a hearing. Of course, any behavior contract must be consistent with the medical staff bylaws because you will need to live by them in the future if there is a challenge by the physician in a hearing or later in litigation. I must note that hearings involving disruptive practitioners are usually the most difficult of all frankly, because of the nature of the personalities involved. So the contract should set forth a fairly narrow and efficient process for any hearing that might result. And of course, that process, which you might engineer specifically for disruptive behavior cases, must comply with the medical staff bylaws and your applicable state law. So to close, disruptive behavior is among the most vexing problems that leaders of physicians and other licensed practitioners face. But by confronting the problem, directly, not ignoring it, not excusing it, but using some of the suggestions we've talked about today, medical staffs and other provider groups can make dealing with such issues easier and much more legally defensible. Thank you very much.